Who turned your Bible to Luke 16? Oh, Children's Church, I'm sorry. I didn't know why he pulled uh, Josh aside. I thought it was his birthday, maybe. Children's Church, all right. <laughs> yeah. Who? Oh, wow. Who does? Oh, Richard and Elise. Okay, I thought you said Lisa and Richard. Oh, I don't know this couple. Richard and Lisa, I think I remember that. Happy anniversary. Praise the Lord. <laughs> All right, Luke chapter 16. <clears throat> now, this message is going to have to really develop in your mind today. And it's got something for everybody, but it's the Bible specifically says... My message today, the scripture concerning the things I'm going to talk about in a minute, the Bible said you must be mature to be able to receive them. You have to be mature to be able to take it in. So I just want to tell you in advance, and I'm being as serious as I can be here, let this develop in your mind. Don't turn off the message when I get to the middle here. Okay? The title of my message is, King Me. How many have ever played checkers? And in checkers, this, um, you know, every checker is the same, right? They all have the same powers, they all have the same abilities, they all have the same mobility, access, authority. But something happens when you get to the other side, right? You get to the other side, something happens where you say, King me. And when you get kinged, it's like, I want you to picture this spiritual crown coming down from heaven on you. And it just crowns you. And when God kings you, things are going to change in your life. Things are going to be different. And the Bible has ordained it and we're to walk in it. And if we don't walk in it, we can't accomplish what God has wanted to accomplish in us. So this message is going to take me some time to develop and make you understand, but if you're mature and you apply your heart to it, you'll understand it. And when that king gets crowned, all of a sudden that common checker has authority it didn't have before. It's a king now. That checker has authority to do things the other checkers can't do. It has access that the other ones don't have. It goes frontwards, it goes backwards. It has access that the other ones don't have. Now chess is a little different. Chess has a hierarchy. Chess has a king, it has a queen, it has a bishop, it has pawns, it has knights. And that hierarchy doesn't get shattered. How many know that? The priesthood of Aaron was a hierarchy. And you couldn't have mobility to be a, from a pawn to be a king. You had no ability to do that. And so God takes great, um, a great amount of time to explain how the Aaronic priesthood was going to end and God was going to institute a different priesthood that would allow a checker to become a king. And God wants to change our authority and our access to Him. 
He wants to make us have the kind of mobility where he takes us from a common person to royalty. And if we don't understand that and we don't apply that, we just can't do what God wants us to do in this world. But this is going to take me some time to develop, okay? So everybody stay with me this morning. And this scripture in Luke 16 is going to seem absolutely foreign to what I just talked about. In fact, I don't think I've ever done this. I'm going to read a scripture in Luke 16, and I'm not going to come back to that till the very end, and I won't even preach out of this chapter. You know, it's amazing how I'm going to do this, but it's going to happen. Luke 16, 13 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and you will despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, Lord. Lord, reveal yourself today, Lord. Reveal who you are and reveal who we are, Lord, in you. Touch this message, Lord God. Put your anointing upon it. Speak to the people. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, where I'm going to be preaching from, I'm going to reintroduce you to a story you probably heard before. And the story is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. You say, how in the world did you go there from where you're at? Stay with me. How many remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Where God came in, in Genesis chapter 19, verse 23, it says... Um, and you remember the story that um, Lot and Abram were about to separate, right? And they were so um, blessed by God that they were just having quarrels over the land because they were being so blessed with herds and flocks and blessed so well. And Abram just said, hey, you know, why should we can, you know, have arguments with one another? There's so much land here. Uh, you take the best and give me what you don't want. So Lot looks over and there's a notation in there that he looked over towards Sodom. And this is one of the five cities around the Dead Sea area, uh, downhill from Jerusalem, near Jerusalem there. And so around those five cities that were formerly there, Lot just had his eye on that area and there's a notation in there that says, That city was very wicked before the Lord. Like even at the time that Lot was looking at that city, God makes a point of saying, yeah, that was that city that was really, really wicked. And so already Lot decides to pitch his tent near Sodom. And then the next story is one of the ones I'm going to really talk about tonight. Lot, there's a war that happens, and Lot is actually right in the middle of the city now. And then when the city is about to be destroyed, Lot is actually one of the leaders in the city. Okay, he's sitting at the gate, and he's one of the leaders of the city. And so, Sodom is a picture in the Bible, and we'll begin to develop this, of the world. It's just a picture of a world that is uh, totally opposed to God. In fact, Sodom means burnt Scorching or judgment is what the word means. And so it is a symbol of a world that is heading toward judgment. And Lot, his nephew, 
the Bible says, was a righteous man, but his spirit was vexed because he chose Sodom. He was always vexed by that city. That city always drove him and his family away from God because he was so fascinated with Sodom. And so we begin to see it develop, and and a lot of times we remember Genesis 19 where the city was destroyed. Now, there were five cities, and um, all the cities were destroyed except one, and the only reason the one city was not destroyed, which was called Zor, was because uh, Lot was going to flee to the mountains, and Lot just kind of made an agreement with the angel, can I just go to this little city, Zor? And so they waited for him to get there, and then they destroyed the whole city. So here he is in the valley here, and it says, By the time Lot reached Zor, this is uh, Genesis 19:23-30, the sun had risen over the land, and the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. He overthrew those cities, plural, and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities, also the vegetation on the land. But Lot's wife looked back, she became a pillar of salt. Early in the morning, Abraham got up, returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw the smoke rising like the smoke of a furnace. So a lot of times we see Abraham here, and we see him really detached from what's going on here. Aside from him having a discussion with God about how many righteous souls do there need to be in that city for you to spare it, where he negotiates from a high number down to a very low number. And God says, yeah, I'll spare it for that amount. And then he goes down a little farther. Will you spare it for this amount? Will you spare it for that amount? Will you spare it for like the least amount of righteous people in there? Will you spare it? And God said, I will. And so aside from his negotiations with Sodom and his hearing about the fact that God is going to destroy it from his visitors in the previous chapter, we think he's a little bit detached from Sodom. And his nephew is living there. He knows they're living there. Obviously, he's interceding for Sodom because God comes and says, this is what I'm going to do. We need to let him know that we're going to do this. And so Sodom is a city that Abraham really interceded for and and, and also his, his closest relative lived there, Lot. And so God begins to destroy this city and he watches it from a distance, the fire burning like a furnace. So, so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the catastrophe, but overthrew the cities where Lot lived. Lot and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in the city of Zor. I wonder why he was afraid. <laughs> but did you see, because of Abraham, God spared Lot. Abraham was interceding for Lot, and a righteous man was going before God and saying, please spare him. You know, he's in the middle of this wicked city, and his spirit is vexed. And if it weren't for Abraham interceding for Lot, he would have been lost in the, in the judgment. And so anyway, we go from here, and we just begin to speculate, well, what kind... In fact, in Deuteronomy, it gives you an elaboration on the cities that were destroyed. It says the whole land was a burning waste, this is Deuteronomy 29-23, the whole land was a burning waste of salt and sulfur. Nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing on it. It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adnah, and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his fierce anger. All the nations, why is the Lord done this to the land? Why is it 
a fierce burning anger. So it mentions the other cities in the plain that were also destroyed, not just Sodom and Gomorrah, but four of the five cities sparing Zor. So you go down and you begin to look at this. In Genesis 13, as Lot is overlooking Sodom there, and he first goes into that area, it says in Genesis 13, 13, it was very, they were very wicked sinners against the Lord. You go a little further down, it says in Genesis 18, 20, when God is talking to Abraham about destroying, it says the outrage of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins are so grave that we must go there and deal with it. It was so bad they had to go do it. God was on his way to do it because it came to his ear that it was so bad and he wanted to see for himself how wicked it was. I mean, no, this is an example of judgment. The Bible says in several places an example of the judgment that's going to come upon the world. This is a symbol of the world here. And so you go a little further and it says, Genesis 18.21 says, I'm sorry, Let's go to the New Testament. It says in Jude 1.7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, that's fornication, and pursued unnatural desires, that's homosexuality, served as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Another version says, Likewise Sodom and Gomorrah, cities near them, which like them committed fornication and pursued homosexual activities, serve as an example of the punishment of eternal fire. So just to make sure there's no confusion, this city was very promiscuous. This city was very wild. It was like a lot of the cities that we see today. You know, really, uh, you know, maybe it was Las Vegas that was in the plane. And Lot was like, wow, you know, I want to live, I want to live near Las Vegas. And Abraham's like, I'll stay over here. I was like, no, I want to live over there. And and Abram doesn't think it's a good idea. The next thing you know, he's in the middle of Las Vegas. The next thing you know, he's the mayor of Las Vegas. He's right in the middle of the casino. This is the best example I can come up with, honestly. And so anyway, it came to God's ears. And and then um, here's what's interesting. Did you know that Abram almost became the king of Sodom. Did you know that? He's not totally disconnected from Sodom. You say, wow, that's kind of scary. How how would things have been different? Abram, of course, his name is Abram here. Shortly later in the scriptures, God names him Abraham. And Abram had a situation in his life where he could have became the king of Sodom. He could have ruled the entire region there. Isn't that interesting? Look in Genesis chapter 14. This is approximately the best dating I could get on this. is 17 years before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. Okay, I want you to imagine this. Everybody knows about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Still today, people mention Sodom and Gomorrah. It's in our legal system, Sodom and Gomorrah. But Sodom and Gomorrah, 17 years before the destruction, this event happened. 
And let me read it, and I know this is a lot of reading here, but it's important to hear. At the time, Amraphel was the king of Shinar. This is chapter 14, verse 1 of Genesis, first book of the Bible. So at the time, there was a king named Amraphel. He was the king of Shinar, which is Babylonia, basically. The area, this is the Mesopotamian area, and there's four kings, okay? This is the area where the Tower of Babel just occurred not too long ago. Now they've all moved down in this area of Mesopotamia. It's the area where Nimrod built his kingdoms. So these are the basically the armies that were developed under Nimrod and several kingdoms that he built. Okay, four kings. Amraphel was one of them, king of Shinar. Arioch is the king of Eleazar. Uh, Kedor Laomer is the king of Elam. And Tidal is the king of Goyim. These kings went to war with Bera. Or Bera, either way you want to pronounce it, Bera or Bera. He's the king of Sodom. Bersha is the king of Gomorrah. Um, Shinab is the king of Adma. Uh, Shemeber is the king of Zeboyan. And the king of Bela, that is Zor. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim. That's the Dead Sea Valley. Uh, they make a notation here that that's where the Dead Sea is now because at this time it wasn't there. Uh, the southern part of the Dead Sea is really shallow and there are certain centuries where it was completely drained and there were certain seasons when the rainfall was higher you actually had the southern part of the Dead Sea. So this is now the Dead Sea area, but it used to be an uh, area that was actually a plain that was drained. Okay, and they had slime pits all around it. So anyway, these four kings... It says, went to war with five kings, which are the five cities that were destroyed, minus Zor. Is everybody following me? So it also mentions in this verse, as you begin to read, that the four kings had already wiped out everybody in the area. They'd wiped out all of these armies that were giants. And I'm not going to read through all the giant kingdoms. I can pronounce them, but nobody in that day had an easy name. There were no Bills, there were no Joes, there were no uh, Rogers. Okay, so I'm not going to read their names, but just trust me. Every other enemy that was around that area were giants. They were huge, mighty, fierce people. So these four kings had a really strong army because they wiped out those big kingdoms and all that was left was the five. And the five had been serving the four kings for 12 years. You can read this later. I don't want to bog this down. So for 12 years they served them and finally they got tired of paying tribute to them. So the five kings, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other three, they went to war with the four mighty kings. Okay, and they got whipped really bad. In fact, they couldn't run away fast enough. The king of Sodom, several of the people, they jumped in the tar pits, some of them to kill themselves, some of them to hide. Okay, and then they ran up in the mountains. The king of Sodom couldn't run fast enough. Okay, he abandoned his people and he just left. Okay, and they chased him and took all the loot. Well, here's the problem. When they chased all the people out, they took everything. They took their possessions, they took their wives, took the people, they made slaves out of them. And one person escaped and ran back to Abram. They said, hey, Lot was in that group that got carried away as slaves. Mm. So God has his anointing upon Abram. And Abram puts a small group together. He had confederates with the Amorites. 
So they were with him, but he just had 318 fighting men that were raised in his household. He puts the 318 men together, and they go after these four mighty kings, I mean, powerful kings. And Abram just sets them to flight. I mean, he chases them like 190 miles. Okay, I want you to tell how serious this is. He chases them like 190 miles, and then he attacks them from two different sides, and he wins the, the, the war. In fact, I'll tell you this. This is the first war that's ever been mentioned in the Bible. First war. It's almost like a world war in that geogra- geographical area. First war that's ever been mentioned, and Abraham was the one that won the war. And the Bible says that God's anointing was upon Abraham to overcome all of those enemies. Okay, now here's all that to get to this, okay? It says he defeats all those armies and he's standing in a valley, okay? After Abraham returned from defeating Kedor Laomer, which is the leader of the kings... And the kings allied with him. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. The valley of Shaveh is interpreted the valley of the kings, okay? So the king of Sodom, do you remember the king of Sodom? He's the one that jumped into a pit to escape the enemy and left all of his people to be destroyed. This is the king of a city that's maybe as wicked as any city in the world at that time. Okay, he comes back after Abraham defeats the enemy. And it says, The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of the kings, but then it stops. This is uh, Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. It stops. The king of Sodom is there, right? Abram just won this massive victory, is standing in this valley near Jerusalem, okay? The valley of the kings. All right? Remember the title of my sermon, King Me. All right? Standing in the valley of the kings, the king of Sodom is standing there. They stop and they say there was another king there. The other king's name is Melchizedek. His name, Melchizedek, literally means king of righteousness. He's from a city that is called Salem that would later be called Jerusalem. City of peace is what Jerusalem means. So this man is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. King of Sodom, king of righteousness in the king's valley. You following me? So Abram has won literally the first world war that we know of, defeated all these mighty enemies, has all this, I mean, wealth in front of him. Not only did they destroy the five cities and take everything they had, they also were on a campaign and already had went through and destroyed all the other cities. All the wealth of the world is sitting in that valley right now. And here is Abram having to make a decision. So the king of righteousness steps forward, Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness, king of Salem, and he brought out these elements. He brings out the bread and the juice. This is a foreshadowing of a new covenant that we would enjoy one day. And he comes out and he brings a blessing from God through the communion. 
And he comes out and he begins to serve it to Abram. And he said, this is a blessing. And he says, from God most high. And he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to the God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. You can't give a tenth of everything unless you own it. I can't give a tithe. That, that tenth means, in some of your versions it says tithe, right? He gave Melchizedek a tithe, which means 10%. Well, I can't tithe on something I don't own. So he tithed on everything he owned, which was everything that was in that valley. And then he said, I don't want it. But he owned it, tithed on it, and then said, I don't want a single thread from your sandal. I don't want anything from the king of Sodom because I don't want people to say the king of Sodom made me rich. Let me go on here. It says, the king of Sodom, do you hear this? The king of righteousness blessed him. It said, bless you. God put them into your hands. The creator of heaven and earth blesses you, Abram. And he gave him the elements of communion. And then king of Sodom steps up. King of Sodom. King of scorching, king of burning, king of the judgment. 17 years from this day, that king's city is going to be destroyed for being one of the wickedest cities that ever was on the face of the earth. The king of scorching, wickedness, burning, judgment is coming to Abraham to make him a proposal. Bera is his name. The name Bera means the evil one or son of evil. King of righteousness on one side, king of peace on one side, evil one on the other side, king of evil. Could God have made this more clear? And Abraham has everything before him, all the wealth of the land. First world war and he won. And they're all coming for him to, dis- to distribute all the stuff that was won in battle. Abram says, it's all mine. Here's your 10%, God, because you're the one that did it. But I don't want anything. He wanted to make sure the people knew that his wealth did not come from the world and his blessing wasn't the blessing of the world. So Sodom comes to him, and I want you to hear what Sodom said. Sodom said, in my notes here, he said, give me the people. How many of your versions say souls? Anybody? This is verse uh, 21. Verse 21, it says, Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people. Some of the versions should say, Give me the souls and keep the goods for yourself. How many have souls in there? Persons or, okay, some of them say souls. This guy wanted the people. You keep all the money. The evil one is in the valley, the one who was a coward, the one who ran from the enemy, did nothing to protect the people, did nothing for the people, wouldn't stand up for righteousness with his people, was a wicked one, an evil one, in the town of judgment, the town of burning. He was a coward. And now Abram wins the battle because God anointed him to win the battle. He protected the people of Sodom. God is reaching out to the people of Sodom, the people of Gomorrah, the people of these towns, and He's saying, I'm the God who just protected you. 
And you know what? We look at this modern day judgment that's coming from the people and they can't shake their fist enough at God. And God is saying, I'm the one that's protecting you. The enemy's the one that wants to cut your neck. The enemy's the one that wants to destroy you. And Sodom has the nerve to stand up and say, okay, 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 Abram. You keep the goods, I'll take the souls. Does that make you mad? Does that make you mad? The enemy wants to come up and make a deal with us. The enemy's like, yeah, I'll bless you with the worldly blessing. If you want the worldly blessing, take it. If you want to live for the world, if you want to live for the things of this world, if you want to live for temporary things, if you want money that bad, take the money, I'll take the souls. Do you want a big house? Do you want a big car? Do you want the blessing your televangelist tells you you can have? Take it, I'll take the souls. Do you hear God crying out to us? The spirit of Abram is crying out. The enemy is saying, yeah, you take all your stuff. You take the world right now. You take the the blessing right now. You forget about God and you just take everything that's temporary in this world. I'll take your souls. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That's what Jesus said. He had that spirit of Abram on him. That spirit of Jesus was in Abram. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his only child soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his neighbor's soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his co-worker's soul? What's it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his mom and his dad's soul? And the enemy is trying to make a deal in this valley of the king's. And he's saying, you just sell your soul out for goods. You sell your soul out for materials and materialism, and I'll just take the souls. Mm. I hope you're getting this. I hope you're getting it, because when I got it, it hit me. And how many times do we go for the temporary blessing? God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. And Satan's right there. Shake your hand and say, I'll give it to you. i give it to you. It's all around there. Abram could have had it. How many know that? Abram could have had all that. He deserved all that. He won the battle. He didn't really win it. God won it for him and he recognized that. But he could have said, I won it. It's all mine. I deserve it. But Abraham said, King of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people or the souls and and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hands I have sworn an oath to God most high, to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you. You hear that? I'll accept nothing belonging to you. Not even a thread or a strap of a sandal so that nobody will ever be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing from what men have eaten. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and share the belongings with the men who are with me. So he said, my other men that fought with me, they can have what's due to them. But for me and my house, I don't want anything. You see this? He's after the blessing of God that was just handed to him by Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. And so now, 
Let's get to the point that a mature person has to understand this. Turn to Hebrews 5. Hebrews chapter 5. In fact, while you're turning there, we're going to go in verse 1, but I want you to listen to this while you're turning there. Bera's name means wicked one. Bersha, the other king, his name means one who excels in evil or wickedness. Shinal is one's name who means one who hates his father in heaven. You see the kind of people that God was pouring out grace toward? God was protecting these people who hated him. Isn't that amazing? You think Sodom, God just came to Abraham one day and said, well, I'm going to destroy Sodom. Abram was thinking to himself, when I say Abram could have been king, did you notice that the king of Sodom was asking for the people back? Asking for the people back. He could have literally, be, he was, had every right to become the king of Sodom. He had every right to have all of their goods. In fact, uh, Lot had this similar type of frame of mind. Maybe that's how Lot ended up in the, in the leadership of the city. You ever think about that? Lot had a mind frame that said, if I go move in the middle of the city, I'm so righteous. I'm so righteous that I can actually be right in the middle of the world and enjoy all the things of the world, but still be righteous. Abram was like, I don't want any part of that. I'm going to live my life devoted to God, separate from the world. And you see, a lot of Christians today, they're selling out to the world. They say, man, I want to get as close as I can get to the world. They say, well, why are you doing that? Because I want to win them to the Lord. And I said, but you're doing all the same things they're doing. That's Lot living in the city and not being separated. Amen. So he goes on. In Hebrews 5, now we've got a... This is the deep stuff. Hebrews 5 says, Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. They offer gifts... And sacrifices to sins. Did you hear that? A high priest is selected among the people. Okay, in order to be a high priest under Aaron, now this is where the deep stuff comes. You're going to have to follow me. This is the deep stuff. The high priest was Aaron and his family, right? And he's trying to make a case. Hebrews, if you want to have a good phrase for the book of Hebrews, it's better than. Am I ever seen the sign that says greater than? The mathematical sign, that's what Hebrews is. This is greater than this. This with Jesus is greater than this. This is greater than that. Now he's trying to explain Melchizedek means something. So we've got to go from Melchizedek, who was briefly mentioned in the Valley of the Kings, administering communion and uh, taking a tithe from Abram. We've got to take that and figure out what this mystery is because it's bigger than you ever thought. It's so big that God can crown your life and make you a king. You think I'm overstating it, don't you? I'm not. we got to understand Melchizedek. So it says there's a high priest that's normally appointed among the people. And what he's trying to tell him in this verse is, if you begin to read Hebrews 5, is there's a better high priest. And Melchizedek is exactly the high priest that Jesus is. And it's better than the Aaron priesthood. I mean, know that. He said, if you were in the priesthood under the Levites, you had to be born in the family of Aaron. He said, this priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek, which means you don't have to be born in the family of Aaron. 
So Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he goes on and he's explaining it. And he says at the end here, I want you to go down to verse 14. Actually, let's go down to 11. It says, we have much to say about this. He just started talking about Melchizedek. He says, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, this by this time you should be teachers. You need somebody to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk is still an infant and is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. So as he starts to talk about Melchizedek, he says, only the mature ones will get this. If you're not mature, you won't understand this. And everybody right now should be saying, please, please, please let me be one who can understand it. So I'm going to take my time. I'm not going to be in a hurry. Okay? So Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, which means he's not after the order of Aaron. Melchizedek has no genealogy. There's no, uh, everything in the Bible was kept by genealogy. The line of Israel was kept by genealogy. The line of Cain, genealogy. Everything was genealogy. Priesthood, you had to be of a certain family. Melchizedek broke the rule. Melchizedek broke the rule. There was no genealogy. Either he didn't have one or nobody knew what it was. He was serving in Jerusalem as a king and a priest. So he was the high priest and he was also a king and nobody knows where he came from. Nobody knows where he came from. And, and, and David, in Psalm chapter 110, the 110th Psalm, he's sitting in Jerusalem and by a prophetic word he says, Who is this Melchizedek? Turn there with me. David starts to connect some of the lines with this man. Remember, he was opposite of Sodom. King of evil was in one place, king of righteousness is the other person. Psalm 110. Now don't, don't, let, don't lose me here, all right? Very important. David is sitting in Jerusalem, and here's the deal. You have to take my word for this because I can't go everywhere this morning. It was forbidden for a person to ever be the king and the high priest. Under the law of Aaron, under the government of Israel, you could never be a priest, high priest and a king. They never consolidated the two and you were forbidden to do it. Saul uh, basically was removed as king because he tried to do that. How many know that? He tried to make a sacrifice as the priest and... There were other kings that did a lot worse things. Trust me. But Saul was removed as king because he tried to consolidate the two. But David, he's in Jerusalem, which is the town that Melchizedek served in. The high priest and king. And David, by the Spirit of the Lord, begins to think about this. And he says, The Lord said to my Lord, That's a weird statement. David's Lord said to his Lord. This is the Messiah talking to God the Father. He's in their conversation. All right? And he says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord will extend 
your mighty scepter from Zion and will make rule in the midst of the enemies. Your troops will be willing on that day, on your day of battle. That's actually us. He's going to have a whole troop behind this Messiah and they're all going to serve with him royally. Okay, this is us he's talking about here. And he goes on and he says, um, They'll be arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn. You'll receive the dew of the youth. The Lord has sworn and has not changed his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. You will crush the kings on the day of your wrath. You will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Listen, this is a prophecy about a king who's also the high priest, just like Melchizedek. So the Aaronic priesthood, and as you go in Hebrews, and I'm going to speed it up here, but as you go in through chapter 6 of Hebrews, and then you go to chapter 7 of Hebrews, he begins to explain that if the Aaronic priesthood was perfect, then it wouldn't have to be done away with to put the Melchizedek priesthood back in. So here's the deal. We think today that we're like some kind of ministers in the Aaronic priesthood. We think that our pastors are our priests. We think we're the people that just come in with the lamb. All right? And we think there's this hierarchy like a chess match. We think there's a king and a queen and a bishop and a knight and a pawn. And you say, I am just a pawn. I can never be a king. I'm just a pawn. I can never be a bishop. I can never be a knight. And we're stuck in this system of ironic priesthood. And God says, you read Hebrews, God says, I'm changing all that. He said, I'm going back to a priesthood where Jesus is the high priest. He even had the elements there. He even had the, the bread and the wine. He even had the bread and the cup. And he administered. He said, there's going to be a new covenant. There's going to be a new priesthood. There's going to be a new high priest. He said, Aaron was temporary. And you're going to get this in a minute and God's going to begin to king you. God wants to king you today. God doesn't want you to be in a chess game where you can't move up and you can't have more access and more authority. Now I want you to tell you, now listen to this. It says, and I'm going to skip way past my notes because I think you already got it. I think you understand that God has changed the priesthood. And even says in there, it, it, it was required to change. Now listen to this. Revelation 1.6. And you have made us. Who is us? Us. In the Greek it means us. U.S. Us. Not U.S. But us. God has made us kings and priests unto God. And his father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Maybe that's just isolated. Goes down to First um, Peter two nine, but you are a chosen people, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, you are a people belonging to God. So you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Hope I put this in my notes. But Revelation five, did I put it in here? Yeah, Revelation 5, 9 to 10 says, And they sang a new song. That's us. You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals, for you were slain. You redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That sounds like us. 
and you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth with you. King me. Some of us aren't living like priests. Some of us aren't living like kings. Some of us aren't living like a royal priesthood. We're living like a pawn in a chess match. We have no mobility. We have no access. We have no authority. And God is saying, no, you're a little checker that was redeemed by the blood. You made it to the other side. Okay, you're tasting of the heavenly things. You've received the spirit of God in you. Now king me. And God's saying he wants to king you with authority and access. When that king, when that, that authority and that crown comes down from that checker on that, that checker is never going to be the same. He has the authority as the movement. He has the ability as the access. Okay? And he's able to do things he couldn't do before. Here's the two things that happen when you're a king and when you're a priest. A king has authority. A priest, everything about the priest that you read and that we know about a priest is, he has access to God. He has access that nobody else has. You say, well, wait a minute. The high priest was the only one that had access. The high priest was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies. Listen to this. If I can find it in my notes. Give me a second. It's too important not to find it. Help me, Lord. Here we go. This is Hebrews 6. It says, we have this hope as an anchor to our soul. This is Hebrews 6.15. Or I'm sorry, 19. We have this hope as an anchor to our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, entered on our behalf. He has become the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you know what a forerunner is? The one that goes in first. First. So now, he went in first on our behalf, satisfied the requirements of God. He made a path of his blood and his body, walked into the presence of God, And he said, now you have the right, the Bible says, go boldly to the throne of God. Do you know you've been kinged? Do you know that you have access like a high priest now? We didn't have that before. We were pawns in a hierarchical system of Aaron and we had no ability to go in the presence of God. And now the Bible says we're kings. You say, well, what kind of authority do I have? The Bible says if I preach the gospel... Now, how did you become a citizen of Israel? You had to proselyte. Right? You had to become Jewish. And they could accept you in. The priest could put the blessing on you and you could be a part of that nation. The Bible says, preach to all the nations. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, I have authority and you have authority to say the sinner's prayer with somebody and welcome people into our kingdom? You have authority. Everything that's under Jesus' feet is my authority. I have authority that Jesus has. And I have access that Jesus has. I am a priest to God forever. 
I'm a priest under God. Praise the Lord. And God wants to crown us with that. Some of us still think, we think a priest, we see a guy with a little white collar. They missed this whole Bible teaching. They didn't realize that that whole priesthood of Aaron is gone. The order of Melchizedek, just like Melchizedek, he made us priests unto our God. And now, I want you to begin to look. I'm going to try to get back up to Luke 16 here and close. This is interesting. Abraham comes to Melchizedek, takes the elements, which are the blessing from God, and then he gives a blessing back to God. Let me know that. It's a two-way thing here. The elements represented the blessing of God that he was putting on Abram's life. The gift that he gave back was the tithe. And, and I want you to just lose all negative connotations of the word tenth or tithe. This is not a message about money. Abraham brought this tithe because to him it was really important. And, and Hebrews explains that Abraham was less than Melchizedek. Abraham was giving that gift as a token that I trust God with everything. So he brought that tenth and gave it to Melchizedek. And so that tenth was him saying that God is the greatest authority in my life. Do you know that Abraham learned a lesson through this war? Do you know that Abraham went to Egypt before this happened? He was totally disobedient. God watched him everywhere. Anybody that tried to bother him while he was in Egypt, number one, God, I don't think, wanted him to go to Egypt. He wanted him to trust him in the promised land. Abraham failed, went to Egypt, then went to Egypt. What did he do? He lied. He didn't trust God. He didn't do anything right. But all the time he was doing that, God was saying, anybody that touches his wife is going to be sick. And diseases went upon him if they tried to touch his wife. God protected his wife. God protected Abram. Nobody bothered Abram. Abram came out of that land with so much money he didn't know what to do with it. And God still blessed him even though he was disobedient. This time around, Abraham learned the lesson. If I can't trust God with my money, I can't trust God with anything. And so here was all the riches laid in front of him. And Abram said... I don't want it and I don't need it. I want God's blessing. I want God to bless me. I don't want the world to bless me. I'm not chasing after the world. I'm not chasing after the things of the world. I want God's blessing and only God's blessing in my life. Now look at this. Here's something you may not have noticed. Turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 3, 8. How many know that chapter and verse? This verse is used to, many times in churches, used to, Get money from people. They will take this verse, and by the way, the verse, if you don't know it is, will a man rob God? But you have robbed me of my tithes. In fact, I'll read it in a minute. But I want you to start in chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to see who this letter is written to. Malachi 2.1 says, And now, you priests, this commandment is for you. You guys ever notice that? Who's this letter written to? Anybody? This letter is written to the priests. 
So Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and he's addressing a book to priests. I bet you guys thought that was that was addressed to the entire nation, right? Malachi is written to the priests, and the priests served in God's temple. And the priests, there, there's two kinds of priests, a high priest and a regular priesthood. Okay, there's the Kohen and the Kohanim. Okay, Jesus is the high priest. We're the Kohanim, right? This is addressed to the priests because the priests, the people that served under Aaron in the temple was just one family, right? The Levites. And the Levites refused to bring a tithe to the high priest. So God was telling them, because you won't bring your tithe to the high priest, there is going to be a curse on this priesthood. This priesthood, basically God says in there, that priesthood is going to be wiped out because you haven't been faithful. And so you say, wow, well, how about now? The priesthood's gone. Now I'm like Abram. And Abram thought it a minor thing just to give the money to God. He thought it was a minor thing. And I want you to hear what Jesus says. I'm going to close this. It's a very odd way to close, but I want to close with this. Listen to this story in Luke 16. Here's the decision that Abraham was making in that valley. Is the world going to satisfy me? How many have ever uh, cleaned fish? I'm making this even weirder now. Have you ever cleaned fish or some kind of animal and you, you're basically cleaning them and then you open up their belly and it's like, you're always like, ah, oh, discovery. Let's see what he's been eating. Guys do this, okay? Some of you women might. What has he been eating? You know, you cut open a shark and it's like a license plate. You know, and you might find all kinds of odd things in there. Um, but basically, this is what we're finding out about Abram. We're not cutting him open and seeing what's in his belly. But we're seeing what he fills his life with. What does he consume in his life? What does he believe? What does Abram believe? Is it God or is it the world? Is it money or is it God? You can't serve both, the Bible says. You have to serve one or the other. And Abram was put in a position in the Valley of the Kings where he could have had everything. And he said, I don't want it. You cut Abraham's spiritual belly open, and it was full of things of God. You cut some people's spiritual belly open, and it's full of the world. I want this, I want that, I want this. And Sodom says, take it, I'll take the souls. But here in Luke 16, I want you to hear this story, and I'm going to close the story here. Listen to the story. It says, Jesus told his disciples. So who's telling the story? He told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? About you? Give an account for your management. So it's a rich man. This is his money manager, right? This is the guy that managed his investments. And so the rich man... Um, asked the money manager to give an account of how he took care of his possessions, right? And he says, so he called him and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account for your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. 
So I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job, people will welcome me into their houses. He's basically saying I'm going to be homeless and I have to look for somewhere to live because I'm not strong enough to dig. All right, and I don't want to beg people. So he's worried about his job, right? And he says, so he called in each one of the master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe me, my master? He said, 800 gallons of olive oil. He replied, the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? He said, 1,000 bushels of wheat. And he replied, "Uh, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly for the people of this world. Uh, He said, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so then what is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with very much. Whoever is dishonest with very little is also dishonest with very much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, what's he talking about here? Did you notice he said that money is the littlest thing? Money is the little thing. If you can't be faithful in the little things, then how can I trust you with the big things? He said if you can't be trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, how will you trust how can I trust you with true riches? What are the true riches? God's blessings, right? And then he says, and if I, if you had not been trustworthy with, if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, how can I give you property of your own? And then it says, my text, no servant can serve two masters, either who hate the one, love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this. And were sneering at Jesus, he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of men, but God knows your heart. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Here's what God's trying to tell us today Abraham made this decision in this valley. The money meant nothing to him, God's blessing meant everything to him. And what God's telling us today is we make such a big deal out of money, don't we? We make a big deal out of material things. And what God's saying is, faith-wise, that's like the littlest thing. When Abraham brought his tithe to Melchizedek, that wasn't the biggest thing in Abraham's life. That was a little thing. That was a little thing that said Abraham doesn't care about money anymore. He used to, but he doesn't anymore. He passed the test. He said, I'm not serving money, I'm serving God. I'm not serving material things. I'm not trying to fill my belly with the world, trying to fill my belly with God, because I care more about the souls than the goods. And the tithe that he gave to God to honor God, he didn't give it to Melchizedek to to honor Melchizedek. He gave it to God, and it was the least thing that he did in his life. He left the land that he lived in and went to somewhere he didn't even know. He went to battle to save the most wicked cities in the world and gave his life. He could have died right there and lost every promise that God gave him. The littlest thing in Abraham's life was his faithfulness with money. That's a small thing. 
He said, man, you want my money? I don't care about your money. Trust me, I don't care about your money. I'm not there to fill an offering plate. Here's what I care about. Are you more worried about money in this world than you're worried about God? And you don't want a preacher to talk about it because he said the Pharisees loved money. You're so caught up in money, you can't even get past the money. You can't get past the money. Don't talk about it. You're just one of those preachers who are rich. I don't have any money. I don't care about money. I don't want money. I say it regularly from the pulpit. I don't care what you put in the offering plate. How's that? But do you want God's blessing? You're going to have to get over the money problem. That's the little thing. The big things come after that. If he wants to trust, if he can't trust you with money, he can't trust you with anything. If you can't come to God's house and say, God is bigger than me, he's the possessor of heaven and earth, and I give God glory for everything I've done, then you're not going to make it in this life. If you can't come in and say, I've got a great marriage, and it's all because of me. No, you have to come in and say, I have a great marriage because God is the possessor of heaven and earth and he's made me the kind of husband I need to be. He's made me the kind of wife I need to be. He's the one that allows me to do my job great. He's the one that I worship. He's the one that I love. Money, that's something, not, that, that, that's automatically going to God. I give God glory for everything. I give God my time. I give him my talent. I give him my possessions. Abraham gave everything to God. That tithe was nothing. That tithe was just the little things. God knew that he could trust Abraham in the big things. Amen. Rest your feet. Praise the Lord. If I could have a couple of ushers up here to help me serve communion. Isn't this a good day for communion? I want to thank these guys. They put that together at the last minute. And when we take this communion, I want you to think about this story. This is the blessing of God. In fact, the Bible... In fact, I'm going to have you guys read that scripture and pray, like, like we've been doing, if you guys don't mind. Get your Bibles ready. Um, the Bible says that when we take communion, we should be very careful. And it says that a lot of people are sick and dying prematurely and not receiving God's blessing in their life because they fail to discern the communion. Isn't that weird? They're dying prematurely, they're sick, and they're not receiving God's blessing in their life because they fail to discern the Lord's communion. So what are we failing to do here? We're failing to realize what Abraham realized, that God is the possessor of everything on heaven, everything on earth, everything that was in that valley, all the riches were God's. Everything on heaven, can you say everything? On earth is His. So we have to discern that His blessing is more important than the world's blessing. And if we can do that with this, if we can discern the promises, we can discern the blessing, we won't die prematurely, we won't be sick of some things, we won't have ailments that we have because we don't discern it. Amen? Praise the Lord. All right. Eddie, you have that ready? Oh, I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. Um, how did you do this last time? Everybody come. All right. We're going to go and serve uh, communion, so if you guys would come up here, and uh, we'll just start here in the front, work our way back. Actually, it's usually just a free-for-all. There's no water to do this. Just come on up. <laughs>
I thought I was going to have order there for a minute, but I, there's no order. It's just a free-for-all. All right? Just don't knock anybody down. Wait to the table. share with you before we uh, take communion. Uh, Eddie looked up a word when I was preaching. Remember I said that uh, the king of Sodom Sodom said, uh, give me the souls or persons. That word is nefesh. It means give me the souls, self, life, creature, person, appetite, mind, living being, desire, emotion, passion. Give me that. You keep the material goods. He wants to promise you all the temporary, but let me take all the eternal. I just want to tell you before we take communion, some of you, uh, if you're in this room, the Bible says to examine ourselves when we take it. If you're in the Lord and you accept Him as the Lord of your life, The Bible says take it with joy because it's a blessing. But if you examine yourself and you say, I'm not right with the Lord, then it says you're actually drinking, uh, you're you're under the understanding that judgment is coming my way and I'm taking communion. So if that's you and you're not right with the Lord, just lay it aside. You say, man, I want to get right with the Lord. Find me after this service. I'll, I'll, give, I'll administer communion to you individually. We'll say a prayer. The Bible says, confess your sins. And He is faithful and just to forgive you of sins. Cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. If you're not right with God, I'm going to give you a special communion. We're going to repent. We're going to get right with God. We're going to receive Him as the Lord of our life. And you'll have a special one today. So you find me when this is over. If you're not right with the Lord, do not drink that cup. Even if it's in your hand, lay it aside. It's just drinking judgment. We want to get you right with the Lord and let's take communion and be a beautiful thing. You say, well, my sins are pretty bad. His blood is more powerful. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Something we've been doing, uh, every time my leadership group gets together, we take communion. And we're going to have to get out of the mold of playing chess in church. Meaning there are a hierarchy and I'm your priest. We're all priests. You know, every time you raise your hands, that's symbolic of the priest uh, incense going before the Lord. Every time we raise our hands, every time we worship, it's a priestly act. Every time we make a sacrifice to God of our life, I mean, no, that's like a sacrifice on the altar. The Bible says it's a shadow of our real lives today, those sacrifices. So every time we get together, we take communion, and guess what? I don't administer it. My leaders always do because we're all priests and kings. We're a royal priesthood. We need to know that. We need to know that we have the authority to bring people into the kingdom. You don't have to bring them to your pastor. 
you have kingly authority. You've been king. Everyone, least for the greatest, every checker gets king. You make it to the other side. Amen. Praise the Lord, soul. So I'm gonna. One, one thing I want to always do is I want to have other people administer because we're all priests. We're all kings. In fact, isn't it awesome that the new priesthood it doesn't say you only have to be male? Male and female, we're all priests and kings. I don't have to be born in a certain family. I be in a hierarchy. I've got access to the throne. This is the Lord of my life. Praise the Lord. Eddie. from the Lord what I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me Dear Heavenly Father we thank you for this great plan you had Lord we thank you that you gave us a high priest to redeem us We no longer want to give our persons to the world, Lord. We no longer want to... No longer want to live for anything of this world. But we surrender completely. Jesus, we thank you that you you went before us. You were that forerunner. You died for us. So we can enter into the priesthood. I thank you for this. Thank you for your body. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Father God, thank you for showing us what's temporary, Lord, and what's eternal, God. And thank you for the example that you set for us. I pray that you would just build it up in our hearts that we would do as we've seen you do. Thank you in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. I went a little late, so I'm going to dismiss you, but you're welcome to stay and worship with us. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, right now, Lord, release your people, Lord God, with a covering of a king, Lord God. Father, they've been raised up a royal priesthood, Lord. Father, they've been raised up to proclaim your kingdom, Lord God. They have authority. They have access, Lord. Father, I pray that you put your anointing upon each believer, Lord God. Raise up a royal priesthood in this house, Lord. In your name we pray, and everybody said, Amen.
say. I'm sorry to interrupt. If you still have your juice and your cracker, let's go pray over here. All right? It's an awesome altar call. I've never had an altar call like that, but the Holy Spirit is helping us today. Praise the Lord. We'll be over here in this corner over here.